Max Verstappen storms to victory in Zandvoort to equal the record for nine straight victories, first set by Sebastian Vettel. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is round 13, the Dutch Grand Prix. If Max Verstappen were ever going to wilt under the pressure of circumstance, surely it would have been here. Inside the cauldron of his home race in Zandvoort, under the pressure of an expectant home crowd, in the attendance of the Dutch royal family, dealing with the capricious weather forecast and falling to almost 20 seconds off the lead after just two laps, a lesser driver would certainly have faded. But it seems nothing can break the Dutchman's stride this year. The reigning champion waltzed to yet another victory, vanquishing his own teammate in the process to equal yet another record for F1 domination. It was a Grand Prix that hinged on strong execution from the pit wall and from the cockpit as wave after wave of rain arrived. And when the flag fell, Fernando Alonso and Pierre Gasly were Verstappen's closest challengers in the mixed conditions of an unpredictable race. So to debrief Max Verstappen's record-equaling ninth championship Grand Prix victory, I'm joined by Speed Cafe F1 editor and my co-host on the Fox Sports and Speed Cafe Pit Talk podcast, Matt Koch. Matt, welcome to the Strategy Report. Thanks. We're clearly running on, like, if we were Ferrari, strategy E or F if I'm on the show. <laughs> yeah, but you don't know which one's the best one. That's the beauty of the Ferrari strategies. You don't know which one's going to work. So this one could actually be the neither, optimal. Neither do they, in fairness. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's the best way sometimes to live your life by the Ferrari strategy playbook, never knowing how it's going to turn out. Uh, Ferrari actually, actually, well, no, they might feature a little bit later in this podcast. Certainly not near the top of this podcast. In fact, virtually all year, I think they've featured fairly low in the priority order for this podcast. Let's start with the headline of this uh, race, first of all, before we get into the nitty-gritty, which is Max Verstappen has yet another record in his sights. He's equaled nine in a row, uh, a feat no other driver since Sebastian Vettel's managed a whole 10 years ago when he won the last nine of 2013. Also, let's get out of the way for the anoraks amongst us. Some will say Alberto Ascari did it in 1952 to 1953. Didn't win the Indianapolis 500, though, and that was part of the Grand Prix Championship. And on this podcast, we only go by the technicalities, not the emotional record. So that doesn't count. But let's go to the achievement. Is it, in your opinion, any less valuable these days, given we've got more races, reliability's better, all that kind of stuff? Or does it stand for just as much? I don't think we can really compare apples for apples with certainly sort of the 90s and earlier than that. With Sebastian Vettel of 10 years ago, there were a very similar number of events. So, yeah, it holds holds water. It's as valuable as it was for, for Seb back in the day. But if you look back in the 60s, they were running 10 Grand Prix. So Jim Clark would have struggled to get there. There was more reliability, as as you say. Even the 50s, there were fewer races again. So you've got to put an asterisk next to it. Yes, it's a monumental achievement. But what does it actually mean in the context of Formula One history and World Championship history? Because there's obviously non-championship events as well. I, I don't know. It, it's a nice bragging right statistic. <laughs> um, it's like having 100 Grand Prix wins. Yeah, that's a phenomenal achievement. But it doesn't mean anything because just the sheer weight of numbers of events is, is different. So it... it I want to use the word cheapens the accomplishment, but it, you know what I'm trying to say? It's yeah. it's easier to attain because there are fewer races. 
Or there were there were fewer races. I know what I'm trying to say. Leave me alone. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. I, I think it's certainly comparable with Sebastian Vettel, but it's probably by that same token not surprising that Vettel was the last one to set the benchmark. It was okay. Ten years ago is actually quite a few years, but it is like you say, kind of similar generation. And before that, and in in an increasing or decreasing way, was harder to to get to that nine. I mean, before that, yeah, you got to go back on a technicality to the 50s to find someone who'd achieved something like that. So I, I think in context, yeah, it maybe makes it slightly less uh, enormous than it might seem. But nonetheless, breaking a record is breaking a record. And it's not only that he's... It's not as if he's, let's be honest, squeaked to nine in a row. Like, he's almost certainly, touch wood, if you're Dutch, I guess, going to reach 10 in a row this weekend. And then, you know, realistically, we're talking about Red Bull potentially sweeping the year could go all the way to the end but let's look at how he got there and, and look at this race in a little bit more detail it was a win from pole wasn't as straightforward as other wins from pole for max this year in fact by the end of the first lap effectively he'd lost the lead or the end of the second lap uh, and it was a mistake of sorts not pinning at the end of the first lap as the rain was arriving he lost a net 20 seconds just about to teammate Sergio Perez who did take that stop started this second phase of the race if you like on wet tires 17 seconds down uh, on Perez closed that to less than three seconds by the end of lap 11 and then a pit stop got him into the lead by the time they switched to slicks he undercut Perez took the lead never really looked back does Perez have a right to feel a little bit hard done by in a season that Verstappen is kind of walking to the championship at this point nothing really on the line for Max other than victory at home of course does Perez have a right to feel a little bit aggrieved that he maybe even his mission for a win here was with one hand behind his back strategically I think he does yeah as an individual he certainly should feel upset because he should have had strategic priority based on his track position but We've seen other instances this year where teams have perhaps gone against the established norm of pitting the lead driver first with a view to protecting track position. That's what I believe Red Bull will argue in this instance. Verstappen was, uh, I think you said on the, the Pit Talk podcast, free plug, um, <laughs> that, uh, that Max was about seven seconds back from, uh, from Sergio in the lead, but about five seconds ahead of... Fernando in in third so therefore proportionally in terms of the second stop Max was more at risk than Sergio therefore purely from the team's perspective it made sense to pit Max protect that position Sergio could run for another lap or potentially two based on the uh, the delta at the time and still retain second so as far as Red Bull's concerned it's still first and second it doesn't care which one of the drivers are in as long as it takes home maximum points, of course, Sergio went, then went and spit in the pit lane. But um, ultimately, it's looking at the big bag of points at the end. It doesn't care which of its two drivers achieves the race win itself. So, yes, Sergio can feel aggrieved, but I think Red Bull has a valid argument to counter it with whether it really holds muster is a completely different matter. Whether it flies for, for Sergio Perez will be interesting to see, and I don't think we'll see that until next time we see 
Max and Sergio battling it out on uh, on track. Yes, yeah, Christian Horner afterwards said that they thought there was a real risk Fernando Alonso had pitted one lap earlier than all of them uh, at the end of lap 10 was a real undercut risk. I mean, we saw some really massive undercut numbers at this point in the race because the track was improving so quickly. It was going from wet to dry so quickly. Uh, Alonso was around 13 seconds behind Perez when he stopped. Perez then stopped two laps later, as you said, and that gap shrunk to two seconds so had that been max who was around three seconds behind perez yeah there was a real risk just on that rough calculation at a minimum that he would have fallen behind and while you know it's always tempting to say when you're watching on tv it's sort of like wow you know the red bull's so fast he would have just passed fernando again you know no team is gonna walk into a, a race and willingly give up track position especially at zandvoort where overtaking is pretty hard and especially when there's a wet line or a dry line rather that makes overtaking that much harder. I want to look at Perez's race a little bit though. He's had a pretty ordinary run of form in the middle of this season, picked up a little bit towards the end just before the break. He made that great strategy call at the end of lap one that got him into the lead of the race. Uh, rocketed up from seventh, in fact, on the grid and you know, qualifying is a different story for him, I suppose. And had he, you know, had the race not been red flagged at the end, that call he made to move on to full wets was probably at the right time in the end there was just way too much rain and and the race got called off on balance do you think on the one hand making all the right calls kind of having reasonable race pace will that motivate Perez bring him out of this form slump or will the fact that all of those things are true but he was still smacked by Max Verstappen is that on on balance actually a net negative in terms of trying to pull himself out of this this slump if we go back to where this slump began in my opinion it was the Miami Grand Prix Max was P nowhere on the grid. Sergio was on pole. And then I don't know what Max had for breakfast that Sunday morning, but he went out and probably walloped. pancakes in Miami, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of bacon. But he's just gone out there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was phenomenal that day in, in Miami. He drove past Perez. And it was his first stint that really set that up. And from that point on, Perez has never been the same driver. Head to head. Sergio isn't a max. Is yeah, he's not a max. He, he's a very good driver, an exceptionally good driver, and potentially in any other year in any other team uh, with any other teammate, he'd be a legitimate world championship candidate. The problem is he's in the right team at the right time with the wrong teammate. <laughs> so even him making all the right calls, that car and Max just get on so well. I don't see that. He can challenge his teammate. Sergio isn't a bad driver and he made all the right strategic calls. He does make life hard for himself with his qualifying form at the moment. He needs to fix that and that's a priority. He needs to get that single single lap pace sorted because that's costing him too much. It's leaving him too much to do on on a Sunday. By the time he's got to where he should have started the race, Max is 20 seconds up the road. But it's got to be disheartening to go out there and put in a, in fairness, it was a good race. He, you said he made the right strategy calls. He rolled the dice and he got it right. He lost out courtesy of a team decision, but even still, you get the impression that it was still only a matter of time for when Max got passed rather than if, because he's just had so much more pace. And let's not forget the Zanvoort as well. Um, there's the line that everyone takes around that track, and then there's a max line, which is about a second and a half quicker. Um, <laughs> the guys just got that place figured out like no one else on the grid. Yeah, yet they seem like the same line. What's going on? <laughs> it's very, it's true. And it is, you know, it's funny. This is one race where you would 
if Max were ever to feel pressure, it ought to be here because the atmosphere is just on another level. The pressure of that number of people maintaining a rave-like atmosphere for that number of days. The royal family rocks up. Andre Ryu was on the grid. I don't know if he feels any pressure from him, but nonetheless, there's a lot going on, and just does just is such a cool and collected character. The only driver to have won the modern era, obviously, it's Anvort, and he's doing it pretty straight. Like even in a race that should have challenged him, it was pretty straightforward for him in the end. So that's how he managed to win. A little bit of team help, but the pace was always there, and you felt like it was inevitable, as it tends to feel a little bit uh, around Zandvoort. But let's look at how the podium battle was decided, because Sergio Perez was not in the top three, despite having a pretty decent race in terms of pace. Did not make it there, uh, ran off track and lost a position to Fernando Alonso in the rain. But I want to talk particularly about Pierre Gasly, who got him for third after Perez had, as you mentioned, that penalty for speeding in the pit lane at the very end of the race. And this was one of those Grand Prix, and we've sort of already mentioned it, in which perfect execution counts for so much, right? Like timing those pit stops right counted for a lot. Pierre Gasly got on the podium from 12th on the grid, launched his way all the way up to 4th, thanks to those pit stops at the start of the race, then capitalise on Perez and that five-second penalty. Really well executed by Alpine and Pierre Gasly. Let's not lose track uh, of the fact that he had to pilot the car in the wet and all that kind of stuff. How big a morale boost is it for a team that's been, let's be honest, sloppy enough for a lot of this year to warrant several rounds of management clean-out? Yeah, that, that's the thing. Morale's got to be on the floor there. If you look at the upheaval over the Belgian Grand Prix, you know, they went into... Friday with a team manager and a team principal. They came out of Friday without a team manager and a team principal. Um, as a bizarre state of affairs. And while senior staff there might understand where the team's going and, and what it's doing, the rank and file engineers, designers, mechanics, hospitality staff, whatever, the bulk of the team, they're not a whole lot more informed than what we are on the outside. So... The only solace they've got is the team performing on track. In Formula 1, that's ultimately the only metric anyway. So to go out and, as you say, execute well, I can't think of a mistake that Pierre made throughout that race. They clearly got the strategy calls right to be up the front to begin with. And then obviously Sergio's penalty helped put him on the podium, but he was there by his own doing anyway. That's got to be a morale boost for them because you look at the top end of that team and you think, where is it going? We've, we've lost our way. We've lost direction. We've lost, you know, the key staff. Alan Fermain had been there for 30 odd years. So morale would be low. This was very much needed. If there was a podium all year that any team needed, I don't think you'd get much better than this for everyone it ends to, you know, the Aston Martin upturn, that that's great. But their morale wasn't on the floor. I think at Enstone, they're pretty much on the canvas because I mean, when that stuff came out in Belgium on the Friday morning, no one really saw it coming because the, the senior staff had all been put in front of the press just a week beforehand. So to have the rug pulled out of you and then go on and succeed anyway... I think that's got to give everyone at Enstone you know, that confidence that, yes, we can do this. It doesn't matter what's happening at the top end of town. We're getting the basics right. We're still a competitive Formula One team, and we've got drivers who can deliver when there's an opportunity. And, and Pierre 
was given half an opportunity to be maximised. And that's that's all that you can ask of those Alpine drivers. So in that respect, Pierre Gasly absolutely delivered, I think. Yeah, pretty good. Well, a great result, in fact, for the team. Only the second podium of the year. And you feel like they just need something to build from into next season. You know, the car is its own thing. Uh, the execution can be something at least they can hang their hat on. One team that should have been probably in contention for a podium given the circumstances. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. Stances was Ferrari. Yes, time to mention Ferrari for this week and what went wrong. Charles Leclerc started ninth ahead of Pierre Gasly, also stopped at the end of the first lap as Pierre Gasly did. He also stopped uh, at the end of lap 11 for Slicks as Pierre Gasly did. They were all the right calls. Although by the time that lap 11 stop came around, Yes, Charles Leclerc's race was already uh, unravelling because of damage he'd picked up. But before that, that lap one stop should have paid much greater dividends, except for the fact that Ferrari did not have tyres ready for the car. Now, we learned afterwards that actually Charles Leclerc had told the team he was coming in as he entered pit lane, and Ferrari is the second team in pit lanes. They would have had maybe 10 seconds maximum, probably less, to prepare the tyres by the time word got around. I thought it was interesting in the context that during the mid-season break and and ahead of this race, Fred Vassar, the team principal there, said, it's not as if Ferrari's really lacking any one thing. It just needs to improve at least a little bit in every area, and that's what's going to snowball into eventually becoming a regular winner and title contender again. And we talk a lot, obviously, on this podcast about Ferrari's strategy mistakes, but... In a situation like this, does this turn the spotlight a little bit back on the drivers? And particularly, I want to talk here about Charles Leclerc and maybe not having his race management 100% down in the same way, for example, that Carlos Sainz often seems like he has a really good understanding of what's required mentally from the cockpit. You sort of get the impression that Charles Leclerc is a seat-of-the-pants driver. And I sort of put drivers into two buckets. You've got the seat-of-the-pants guys who have just got an innate feel of the car, understanding what it's going to do and how to get the most out of it. And then you've got the thinking drivers. And probably the best two ways to categorize that are Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. Ayrton Senna, this this real cavalier driver, went out there and could wrangle every little bit and probably some more out of any car. And then you've got Alain Prost, who in the same car wasn't as rapid over a single race, uh, over a single lap, but over a race was actually faster because he was more calculated. And that's how I look at Ferrari and that you've got that cavalier in Leclerc. He's incredibly fast, but we know he's fragile. We've seen that on multiple occasions. I think at the French Grand Prix last year when he crashed out and arguably lost the World Championship or lost his chance at the World Championship, was probably going to go to Max anyway. Um, and there's been a couple of other instances like that where he's made fundamental mistakes because he's just pushing the car to the absolute limit. As a result, I don't think that 
longer term strategic thinking is is natural to him in the way that it is for Carlos Sainz. So Carlos is thinking not just about the next corner and maximizing that. He's thinking about five laps time and maximizing that stint. And in doing so, he's thinking a little bit further ahead. I'm surprised that a driver of Charles' quality, professionalism level, whatever, made such a rash decision. Because coming in with effectively no warning, you're going to experience that delay. There's there's a point on track at which most teams establish this is where a decision must be made by. And if you pass that, then you've got to do another lap because there's just not enough time. You're going to lose more than you'll gain. I guess the the counterpoint to that would be the conditions have deteriorated so much that spending five seconds or 10 seconds waiting for your tires in the pit lane might be better spent than trundling around 20 seconds a lap off the pace. So maybe the trade-off was worth it, but it was just strange that the rain hit much earlier than pit entry. So he could have made that decision much earlier. And in, in fact, he, he was running around the same place on track as, uh, as Sergio Perez and Perez was pit bay number one. So really no argument that Charles got that wrong. And, and if it was he that made the decision, then he's got to wear that on because I don't think it's fair to put that on, on Ferrari if they've told him or haven't told him more the point to, to box. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, particularly if this had been a clear-cut team mistake. There'd be no question Ferrari would be criticised pretty heavily. Um, and notwithstanding, and I know every driver has their own relationship with the pit wall, but Charles Leclerc has, in the past, including in qualifying for this race, been pretty open about being open about criticisms of the team, about calls that he was in traffic during Q1, I think it was, uh, during qualifying this weekend and, and criticising his placement on the track and that kind of thing. So I do think there, there it's, it's not necessarily criticism to say that there are opportunities to work better and that's sort of something that, that comes not only with time in the cockpit, obviously, but if you compare it to someone like Red Bull and, and Max Verstappen, there is a comfort and trust on both sides that sometimes I think is lacking a little bit at Ferrari, and that is its own hindrance beyond just the mistakes that they might make. But I think Ferrari, everyone is accepting, including finally now Ferrari, that there is a little bit of a rebuild going on, and that will come with time. You mentioned there, I mean, yes, there was a difference between pitting on lap one and, and lap two, and there was a, a trade-off between, okay, not having a perfect stop and just gaining that time because the intermediate tyre was so much faster. Um, pitting on lap one was absolutely the correct decision. The Max Verstappen-Perez comparison proved that, as we've already mentioned. Um, but every lap after that cost quite a bit of time. Lap two, you could kind of get away with. Lap three, you were starting to push your luck. There was, though, a counterpoint, though, here, and Alex Albon and Oscar Piastri were probably the best examples of it, which was just to decide not to stop. You could bypass the decision-making and just continue to lap very slowly for a period of time, but eventually hope the race would come back to you. McLaren's internal decision-making here is kind of interesting because Oscar, on the one hand, didn't stop. And Lando was asked whether he wanted to stop, said no, and then stopped on lap three. Too late. Too late to get any gains at all. Compare the, compare the pair, if you like. Pierre Gasly started eighth, held eighth after the, the stops. He did ruin his race with a lockup, but that's sort of extraneous to this. Lando Norris was leading the race at one point, dropped all the way to 11th after pitting way too late. Uh, he was a few seconds behind Albon, in fact, only a couple of seconds behind Albon when the rain arrived, and you can see how they finished in different places. 
Should more teams have braved... And we surprised that more teams didn't brave out the conditions considering the radar suggested we were looking at only maybe 10 minutes, particularly... And maybe you could bring in Mercedes here, who just seemed universally unhappy with every decision they made all afternoon. I'm going to take this back to the 1993 European Grand Prix. <laughs> For those who are old Go enough on. to remember, it was held at Donington Park. It was the race that... It was a lap of the gods from Ayrton Centre on lap one. He fell to fifth off the start and was leading by the end of the opening lap. The secret to his success that day was being on the right tyres at the right time. I think off the top of my head, I think he made seven pit stops. The key is basically to be on the right tyre at the right time. And as soon as you lose that initiative, you are losing time. We saw that with Lando Norris. I don't understand why... Alex Albon and, and Oscar Piastri remained on track. They were hemorrhaging time to the point where they needed some sort of interruption to bring them back into play. Now, they got that. They were lucky. I guess they played the percentages because in those conditions, an off for someone, a virtual safety car, a full safety car, even a red flag is is very possible. So I guess there's a point where if they wait long enough, you know, the die's being cast and I've just got to hope that the uh, the gods shine on them. Um, if you excuse the pun in the rain. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting that I, I'm, I understand why McLaren and, and Williams left Albon and Piastri out. It was basically the least worst decision once things had got to a certain point. But I think in hindsight, it was it's obvious that they should have pitted. They probably should have stacked their drivers if that's what it took. Um, I think it was uh, Alpha Tauri did that um, with Sunoda and was Alpha Tauri? I'm pretty sure it was yeah, Alpha Tauri right. on the opening lap. Um, and that that would have been the way to do it because you minimize your time loss. Yes, the second car is going to lose out a little bit, but it's still going to lose out by a couple of seconds versus, you know, five, ten, whatever conditions have deteriorated by. Yeah, there was a point where Oscar was something like 10 or 15 seconds a lap slower than the Max Verstappen. At, at that point, I mean, that's a pit stop. That's the delta for a pit stop. So you're losing a pit stop basically at a lap. The only argument, as I say, is that the damage has been done. You've now got to hang it out and, and hope that conditions come back to you, as they did, but they probably came back too late. Um, and Oscar was the fastest car on track for a period. As that He, he was, in fact, the, the one that signaled that it's now dry time um, around that sort of lap 9, 10, 11 period. But it was just too late. It was five laps, maybe you could have done it, but but 10 laps was just too much. And he just, yeah, I, it, it's one that uh, when I get a chance, I'll ask Andreas Stella um, because it's it struck me as a conservative strategic approach from a team that doesn't need to be conservative. It can be aggressive. It can be the aggressor at the moment because it's got nothing to lose. Red Bull, we know that has to be conservative, well, to a, to an extent. Um, but Aston Martin needs to be conservative. Mercedes needs to be conservative. They're in a constructors' championship battle. McLaren's not there yet. It can agitate, so it should have. Also interesting, just in the context that if we cast our minds back only a couple of years, not as far back as the race you referenced, but uh, to the Russian Grand Prix, the Fernando uh, that Lando Norris came really close to winning a couple of years ago, twenty twenty one but for a lack of action on a decision from the rain. Now, of course, the pressure's way higher when you're leading the race. You've got everything to lose. You can't necessarily compare them. 
but a little bit of decisiveness does go a long way in situations like this. And that was something they worked on a lot in the aftermath. They've got a lot of different ways to describe the intensity of rain now at McLaren, but maybe still not that same drive. And I don't know, it's also interesting, you know, every team, not everyone maybe realises this, but every team has access to the same radar data. Everyone is using the same radar to make decisions. And the fact that we got such a variety of decisions is very interesting in that context. I think it was I think it was Lando Norris or one of the Mercedes drivers who was talking about their interpretation of the radar. You know, very few teams expected the rain to arrive so quickly and when they did they didn't expect it to be as intense as this. And as a result we got a real yeah, range of different pit stop times and approaches to this and and some drivers staying out five drivers in total, a quarter of the grid chose not to pit at all. It's just very interesting that even despite having what is kind of like a control part, if you want to liken it to the way we talk about the cars, very different outcomes just looking at the same little splotches on the screen. So there is clearly room to improve in ways that perhaps haven't been considered in this kind of fast-moving weather environment. Uh, As a final point, though, let's look at that overall weather circumstance because we did have several disruptions or interruptions from the rain and one long disruption, a red flag lasted almost 50 minutes near the end of the race. This was a fairly, though, compared to other Grand Prix, I thought, hands-off approach from race control in a pretty refreshing way. Not only in the way that... You know, if we compare to Monaco last year, that they allowed the race to get underway despite rain looming, although it seems no one expected the rain to appear so quickly. Uh, and then at the end of the race, not a lot of time spent behind the safety car. Uh, we got racing underway pretty easily. Someone also had the guts to make a rolling restart rather than an Australian-style farcical standing start. Is this a bit of a new approach? Are we finally seeing, do you think, race control putting all of those pieces together from the last couple of years and serving up what was actually, I think, in in a way, an optimal kind of wet-dry management of a race. Race control now has some experience there. They didn't have that this time 12 months ago. Um, they were still learning the job, and they were sharing the job, Niels Vitic and, uh, and Eduardo Freitas. Now it's it's just Vitic in charge. He's got time to, to get things the way he wants them and he likes them. He's had time to build a rapport and understand the drivers. So that baseline has, has come up a little bit um, versus what it was a year ago. So that's that's a plus. But also I think it was a no-brainer as well. You look at some of the photos and, and footage of just as a red flag came out, and there's one of, I've seen of Sergio Perez sitting at pit exit. It's a wide shot. You've got Sergio on one side waiting at the red light and a river running down the front straight. So it was absolutely the right and only decision, you know, doesn't matter what's happening on track race control's number one prerogative is to protect the drivers the marshals the officials they're in charge of everyone who's inside the gates of that venue by racing in circum in a situation that is dangerous they're risking the drivers the marshals everyone else not to mention the cars themselves you know you even look at japan last year they should have made that red flag call earlier than they did um the last thing we want to see is you know, a crash on track like we did with Jules Bianchi you know, with, a, uh, with a crane or whatever. So just throw the red flag and then buy yourself time. It's, that, it's like throwing the virtual safety car now before the, the full safety car. Because the moment they throw the virtual safety car, they neutralize the race. They've got a degree of control in a situation where they otherwise had none. So they've got control, then they've got time to make a decision. And I think once it was evident that conditions were were 
easing, they made the right decision as probably as quickly as they could. And then you've got the restart process, which adds a little bit of lead time on that. But that's necessary as well. These cars are complicated. So it's it's good, it's positive, it's constructive, and it's, it's confidence-inspiring as well because you now look at race control. They've made the right calls at the right time uh, without any furore, without any drama, and we got a legitimate race out of it. This isn't like the uh, the Belgian Grand Prix, and I've just done the air quotes um, <laughs> around that because I do, still don't consider it a Grand Prix, even though the record books do. And I'm talking about the 2021 uh, Belgian Grand Prix that was an illegal number of laps long, but still counted as a result for some reason. Um, I'm an anorak, and that annoys me. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's just good. Uh, good decision making it's all positive for the sport so yeah I think the points you make there are good signs coming out of race control off the back of that one yeah I think so uh, and good signs of course for Red Bull Racing Did there, were there any bad signs no there weren't they were they're only good signs good vibes only in Max Verstappen's garage as he rockets towards 10 race wins in a row probably at this weekend's Italian Grand Prix but that was the Dutch Grand Prix and Matt thanks for coming on to debrief it with me no worries that was good fun we'll have to we'll have to do it again oh you sound so surprised <laughs> <laughs> It's not always been easy to recognise greatness in Max Verstappen's 11 wins so far this season. Some have been just too crushingly dominant. But the Dutch Grand Prix, which threw up challenge after challenge, was a timely reminder of the high level the reigning champion is operating on, and why we're only a few races away from crowning him again. Thanks very much to Matt Koch for joining me to debrief the Dutch Grand Prix. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork. And our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Aminato. I'll be back next week for the Italian Grand Prix. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast